0: which is at Irregular Hours, episode 151 for February 16th, 2021. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip Hessenflow.
1: And I'm Pam Vador. And we are here
0: in the the midst of winter, my god goodness is it winter and we have some thoughts about the future and the past we're still reading recursion by blake crouch which was published in 2019 but this week we are not going to discuss the the narrative of this story a lot right pam
1: right and actually although i have so many things to say about it already but i am so excited today to be introducing to you guys and to our audience, my good friend, Jamie Kleinman from the University of Connecticut. Dr. Kleinman is a clinical psychologist who works on the scholarship of teaching and learning and who focuses on mentorship. She teaches introduction to psychology courses as well as excellent, excellent classes on tools for emotional wellness. Her focus is working with students as partners, making sure that students are part of policymaking at the university and take a real uh, personal interest in their own education. She's an award-winning professor at UConn and a beloved teacher and mentor to our students. We're excited to have her here with us today to talk about memory, perception, temporality, and the myriad psychological issues that Blake Crouch explores in his novel, Recursion. Welcome, Jamie.
2: Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be joining you all.
1: Well, we're excited to have you because as we've been reading this novel, there've been a lot of questions that have come up that we sort of, you know, we're thinking about from a literary perspective, but we can really use your expertise. And one of the things that stopped me right in my tracks when I started reading this novel from that first amazing scene is that Crouch creates a disease called false memory syndrome. And people in this slightly future world often are dealing with false memory. And from science fiction, he has like, an explanation for it. But from the psychology, tell us about false memories. What do we know about how we code our memories, but also how false memories can occur in real life?
2: So this is such a great question, because the honest truth is we all have false memories, probably a good number of them. And Mm. we're just not even aware that we have them. Um, So you know, here's how memory works on the most basic level. Um, If you've ever played that card game memory, where you have like a deck of 52 cards, I know some people play it like on an app now. So you lay all the cards out, and then you have three processes, you've got encoding. So when you're flipping over the cards, you're sort of learning where things are. If you make a match, you know, you get to keep that. Um, But if you don't, you have to try again. And so the next phase of memory is something we call storage. Okay, so storage is when we're actually taking something that we've experienced, and we're kind of putting it into our memory system for use later on, right. So you might have some sort of a strategy in that card game over two down three is an ace. And then the final part of memory is something called retrieval, right? So retrieval is, I think what so much of us are used to retrieval is when we pull forth that information. When we're talking about false memories or memory errors, there are opportunities at every stage (laughs) in the process for things to go very wrong. So I'll give you an example. And this is something that I do in my intro psych class with my students and they love this exercise. So... I'll just read them a list of maybe about 20 words, right? And then I tell them, I'm gonna read you a list of words. And at the end of the list, I'm just gonna ask you to write down how many of the words you remember. This is a really, really standard memory test that we would do in psychology. And so then I use, you know, lots of different response systems, but I'll ask my students, I'll say, okay, how many of you heard the word curtain, right? And I might get, you know, Two-thirds of the class say they heard the word curtain. Curtain happens to be one of the first words on my list, right? Um, And we, we know that you're better at remembering things in a list you hear early. That's something called primacy. And then I'll ask another thing, like, how many of you heard the word shade? Same thing. I get a bunch of students. They heard the word. Okay, shade was one of the last words on the list. And then I ask how many students hear the word window. Like, right, if you wrote down window on your sheet, let me know. And usually, again, about 50, 60 percent of students say they heard window. Here's the thing. I never said window. Window is not a word that was on my list. And so this is a psychological effect. Right. It's called the DRM effect. And what I've essentially done is I've implanted a false memory in my students in just like a minute. And it's because our brains don't work like Video recorders, right? They're not actually taking in everything. It would be really taxing for us to do that. Our brains, whether it's memory or perception, they fill in a lot of gaps and they do things that we sort of think make sense. So, as it happens when I'm reading those lists, all the words on that are related to window. It'd be very different if I read a list of just 20 random words, right? No one would think of a word that wasn't on the list, there'd be no reason to, but when I read out a list of words like that, it really can be the case that they're going to automatically assume. And it's a pretty robust finding. So like, when we talk about false memories, we have them all the time. That's just a a really easy example. Anytime, um, you know, maybe like you think you remember some birthday, especially if you were a kid, Probably you're not remembering it. You're remembering your mom or your dad telling you about the birthday or you're like at kid birthday parties, they have cake and balloons and they get bikes when they're five, right? Those things may not have actually happened to you. It's just, you've seen TVs and movies and people have talked about it. So like, I love this idea of false memories because we all have tons (laughs) of them. We just, we just don't know.
1: So that's so fascinating because in Crouch's novel, people who struggle with false memory syndrome, they usually have like a long sort of alternate timeline where they remember like being married to someone else, having different kids, whatever. And there's a tech explanation, it's a science fiction novel, but 10% of the people in this world who have FMS end up committing suicide because they can't deal with the cognitive dissonance. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, haven't there been cases where people have, I don't know, I don't want to say deliberately, but where like memories have been implanted of like abuse or whatever that have had like horribly traumatizing effect on people?
2: Yes. So, I mean, I I think that that's such an interesting thing, the idea of our false memories being so disturbing that they would lead someone right to, to, um, to die by suicide. So in the, this was a really big thing that happened in the like late eighties, early nineties, there were some really famous cases involving child abuse, some satanic rituals and cults. Like this was a really big deal. And in almost all of the cases, what ended up happening, there's a really famous case. In fact, it's a man named Paul Ingram. If you look this name up, you would be able to find Paul Ingram's case is one of the most famous. So like when I teach my class, I actually use his case as an example. Um, His, his children felt like they had um, they had memories of him engaging in abuse of them that they, he made them participate in these satanic rituals. So here's the sort of like long story short. In the 80s and 90s, there were a lot of people who experienced depression, anxiety, just like we would expect. A lot of these people were coming from good homes, like night, they had houses, they, you know, the therapists were kind of like, there's everything in your life is perfect and lovely and wonderful. Like, why would you have anxiety or depression? There must be a reason. Something must have happened to you, right? There must have been something really awful that happened early on that you've repressed right into your memory that's now causing you to feel anxious. I mean, like now we know that anyone can have depression and anxiety. A lot of it's biological. We know too that part of that like suburban living wasn't as good as it seemed like, at least from the outside. So anyway, in these cases, therapists, you know, well-intentioned, engaged in sometimes the practice of like hypnosis or like memory regression to try to pull forward these memories. And so like, here's what we know about people. People have a really high need to please and especially a high need to please someone who's in an authority position. And we're really open to suggestions, right? And not everybody, but a lot of people. So in these cases where people had these sort of false memories implanted of like really traumatic, abusive, awful things, what seemed to be the case was that these sort of well-intentioned therapists were implanting the false memories. It also happened when people were being um, um, interviewed by you know police officers, social workers, wards of the court. So like. I've done, um, you know, in my clinical work and clinical training, I've worked in emergency departments and children's hospitals. So I've been on the front line of doing these intake interviews for kids to have come in. And boy, like, it is so specific. And like, we have a literal script that we have to follow, so that we do not unintentionally lead a child or implant any sort of a false memory or imply something. So yeah, no, there are definitely lots of cases. And in some cases, like people definitely have had their lives ruined because of it, but not, I guess, not necessarily in the way it seems like in the book, at least.
3: That statement you made that Humans have this need to please. It seems you know if you think of a hypnotist, that, that there are some people who are just really enjoy this moment because they can run around and I guess cluck like a chicken or whatever. I, I guess it's hitting some primal part of what the human brain could do. Uh, I, I do want to ask a question about um, how we consume, say, media or or something, and it could be news and movies, a storyteller maybe even like family pictures or something, how it changes how we perceive or think about an event. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Oh, sure. I mean, you know, I think there are some there are some famous examples, things that happen like to a lot of people, right? So like 9-11 is the example that I'll often give to people. When we have kind of like repetition of images or repetitions of stories, sometimes it can give us like, a a sense of things that were that may may be wrong, because we are primarily visual creatures, humans, right? So we have all these different senses. Um, So vision is our our primary sense that we rely on for survival. So when we see things, even if we sort of know that they're not real, like a movie or or an image, it's seeing really kind of is believing. So it's funny that you mentioned this, there's actually a really famous research study in psychology, and it's called the balloon ride that never happened. And so there was a a big line of research that came in the mid to late 90s, as a result of all of these cases of implanted false memories, like, so we sort of anecdotally saw this happen. And then researchers, you know, this is what psychologists do, we study, you know, behavior and mental processes, We're like, we really want to understand this phenomenon and understand what's going on. What they did was they, they they somehow were able to obtain pictures of children of of individuals that were in college when they were children. And then they manipulated a photo to make it look like the children took a hot air balloon ride when they really hadn't. And then they asked, Oh yeah, no, it's such
1: a famous. (laughs) I've never heard of this.
2: Yes. Um, And so they were able to get um, about 50% of the people to give like really specific details about the day and the event. And I was so scared, but my dad held my hand and reassured me and everything was fine. And so and, (laughs) and it was totally fabricated, like it was totally false, right? And, and it's just kind of wild and what they actually learned. So this is the interesting part, like when we're talking about science, there's a really famous researcher when it comes to false memory syndrome. There was a, a study, it's Loftus and Pickerel, and it's called the Lost in the Mall study. And so they just ask children, right, about this scenario. Again, it was, or they, they asked college students about when they were children, about this time when they got lost in the mall. And they, again, were able to give people to give details. So when you ask it in a narrative way, you can get like 30 to 40% of people who will like, have the memory get implanted. But when you show it visually, it's now 50 to 60%. Right. So the visual image is just so much more powerful when we're talking about implanting false memories. And I mean, you know, now thinking of just like, all the tech abilities that people have, and, and the deep fakes and the videos and all of this stuff and manipulation. And it's kind of like, once you see it, like once, once it's there, it's hard to, to have it not be there. Right. Right. And And that's exactly
1: what Crouch explores in this novel is that once people have these two timelines in their minds, they just can't get past the cognitive dissonance of the alignment,
2: alignment, I think. So we love love the word alignment in Mm -hmm. my field. The human brain is, it's our most energy consuming organ, right? So it really likes something called homeostasis, which means to be at balance, right? Right. Your brain really likes for you to be kind of chill. And anything that causes your brain to have to do extra work, your brain doesn't really like that. So it has all these different processes. And these are things that we're that this is just how we evolved, right? We don't do anything, it's not conscious, that kind of keep our brains in these sort of like chill states. So You know, you mentioned cognitive dissonance, right? So, this is the idea that if something doesn't fit, you're going to kind of come up with reasons why. And so, yeah, this is what we do. And, And it could be like memory alignment, it could be just like our perceptual experiences. But the harder your brain has to work, like it's a tiring thing, right? So your brain doesn't really like doing that. And some people are way better at coming up with these sort of like alternative explanations, so to speak, for like why things might be. And some people just aren't. So, you know, I haven't read the book, but like that made me wonder about like, why would it be that some people just do end up like, you know, using suicide to, to end their lives?
0: let me recommend that you
3: read this book because this <laughs> book is
1: really good.
3: <laughs> okay, totally. yeah. I, I, I just want to ask a little bit because can this be used for good in the sense that a person experiencing some um, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, some um, unique experience that certainly is having a negative impact on their life, knowing that memory can be changed, is, is there studies that are looking at it using false memories for good
2: yes and so this (laughs) is this is where it's like so fascinating they're doing it in a couple of different ways one is kind of what you're describing which are intentional reimaginings of different scenarios and it's it's a very sort of like intensive process where you kind of imagine something going a different way right these are also all like we don't have answers to which one works yet. I mean, I do want to be cautious and say this. So this is in the last like five to 10 years where they've been exploring these. Another one is this this idea called enhanced forgetting. So this is where especially for people who've experienced trauma and PTSD, they're going through a process where it's essentially teaching people how to take the memory and really kind of just like put it away, right? Mm -hmm. So they recognize that yes, this was a thing that happened, it was real, it impacted you greatly. However, for it to kind of keep intruding into your life in ways that impact your ability to do what you need to do, right? So psychologists, when we give someone an actual diagnosis, it's not just that they have symptoms, it's that their life is impacted and their ability to go to school, go to work, engage in relationships, like those sorts of things. So This process teaches people how to kind of have control over those memories so that they don't interfere in their lives, so that they don't pop up, you know, kind of in in ways that can, you know, cause them to then experience like a panic attack or a nightmare I mean, a lot of times, you know, when we see people using like, we, you know, we will use the term self-medicating, right? So using alcohol and, um, and marijuana. So, you know, you want to talk about like how to impact your memory. Those two substances right there will disrupt encoding and storage. So you can be experiencing things as you experience them, right? So if people get blackout drunk, what's happened is they're no longer storing memories of what's happening to them in real time. And so we know that a lot of people who struggle with like trauma and PTSD, one of the reasons why they're using substances is in fact, because they'll disrupt memories in that way. They're using those things as a way to sort of block out those, those, those memories.
3: So we talked about a person suffering from, you know, maybe a post-traumatic stress disorder or some kind of traumatic experience. How about using memories or projecting through visualization, maybe through coaching, to achieve something incredible. I mean, you want to be an astronaut, what is it like to be an astronaut or, or, or to hit the winning shot? What's it like to do that?
2: That's a really interesting question. I don't know that I have like, I don't know that, you know, so a lot of times will be like this study says, you know, or these researchers said, I can talk at that more from my experience in the classroom. And we're having a lot of discussions about equity and education. And I've attended some really fantastic workshops. And one of the best ones that meaning best meaning, like I left it with some very specific things I can do is they suggested that when you're giving like assignment questions or assessments or exams, instead of just asking a question, you, you phrase it, you say, so you're a clinical psychologist and you've been asked to be a consultant to a school district who's dealing with these things. And so you're putting your students in the shoes of being in these roles that you want them to be. And I feel like that's kind of what you're asking too. Um, I mean, we do know that it's hard to imagine yourself sometimes being in these different things and visualization is really powerful. And one way to sort of help you get there. I mean, we're always encouraging students to like write down their goals and have things like their dream boards and their vision boards. It's, kind of a strange thing, because it's a memory, in a way, it's a memory for a thing that hasn't happened, right? It's like, um, you're creating a memory pathway by imagining things. But then it's kind of like, like, even I wonder, you know, and this is, it would be interesting to see if there are people studying this, kind of like the balloon ride that never happened phenomenon, like you see it, and you believe it happened, right? If you can do that sort of work with people, and then you help them Feel that this is a possibility and I'll I mean I'll say just anecdotally even just like my, you know I gave a, a final exam and I just tweaked each question there were seven questions students had to pick four and I just I just give the, gave that little phrasing I felt like the answers were a lot stronger than they had been.
1: That's really interesting I love that you said like a memory of the future sort of like playing with temporality because they feel like in cultural studies right now we're thinking a lot about how time works and of course, Steve. I don't know. Do you like thinking about how time works? I I basically only think about how
0: time works. That is that is my <laughs> biggest downfall. Is that is the only thing I think about so often that uh, it's very frustrating to those around me who don't want to talk about time right now. <laughs> They don't have so,
1: time
3: to talk about time. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, Jamie, all of us in this podcast, but especially Steve, we all like time travel a lot. And so we've been reading a number of things that deal with time travel from a bunch of different perspectives. And I guess I'm wondering, so from your perspective as a psychologist, why do you think time travel is As Steve would tell you, the best genre ever. Yeah, let me rewrite that question for you, Pam. Which
0: genre is the best and why is it time travel, Jamie?
1: (laughs) Thank you, Steve. (laughs) But what's the appeal? Like, why are we, especially Steve, so interested in these novels where we get to play with time, where we can put memory into the future, et cetera?
2: I mean... It's, a, it's such a good question. Like it's such a rich question. You know, I feel like, like it's be- in, in part, it's just a thing that we're sort of like going along with. You know, we don't have any control necessarily, right? Like we're we're all we are all time traveling. We're just time traveling. You know, at the same speed and at the same rate right now, all together first of all, like if we think about memories and people's sense of identity, right? So like everyone, no matter what, everyone likes to think that they're special and unique. And those are really important things. And people love reflecting on their identity. And your memory is such a huge part of that. I mean, and why would the time travel be so appealing? I think because the potential for you to be a different you, right? You to impact things in that way. So psychologists are also really obsessed with the concept of time, right? This isn't just A thing that I think you know people in in some while I can tell you like from a physics standpoint like time is static so like our experience of time as human beings is something that we kind of hallucinate in a strange way right like it it as much as I can tell you like every second is exactly as long as it is our experience of it is that is not the case right (laughs) so
1: absolutely
2: like So some of my like favorite time dilutions, I think everybody's experienced this. It's a phenomenon called autopilot, right? So if you're driving, and you're it's a common route, and you are just like not paying attention at all, like driving is a really complex cognitive task. And then you just get to where you're going. And then you're like, you totally had spaced out, right? So So psychologists are fascinated with this concept of autopilot and like under what conditions can we induce this? And are there things that we can do to like keep it from happening and looking at it in in people who like might have like job safety things, right? The opposite of that, and I think maybe this is why especially it's such a popular thing in genre, is the concept of losing time, right? Like autopilot is losing time, but you're just like, in a different space doing a task. So there's a a term called flow. Is that a term that you guys have heard flow or like optimal experience in psychology? There's a a researcher, his name is Michael Csikszentmihalyi, which it took me a while to learn how to pronounce it because it does not look like... Anyway, so... I love these ideas of like Chronos and Kairos, right? So like the like tick, tick, tick of time versus those moments where they just feel like you just lose yourself. So they really did study this, this concept of flow, and and they've identified some necessary components to it, right? That you're engaged in a task, you have some autonomy and control over it. I mean, why do we obsess with time? Because we don't have control, I think, of it. Um, that you're fully focused on what it is you're doing right to the point where the whole world falls away. So autopilot is you're doing something and it's so boring that the task falls away and you're somewhere else. Flow is the opposite of that. It's that you're so into what you're doing, right? So people who play music, people who have, you know, you know, you can even do it if you're doing like, it doesn't have to be something like, complicated like when i'm i live on a farm when i'm doing farm work sometimes like I'll get in a flow state right when i'm i'm doing certain chores and i don't know like it's just such an incredible precious experience it's like you look up and like six hours are gone right like and it can feel like that so yeah I mean like psychologists are obsessed with time we did the we did like we have such a horrible history of like really unethical experiments so like in the 60s we would like give people LSD and throw them in sensory deprivation tanks to then basically ask them. And then we check in and we would be like, how much time has passed, you know, just to see like what their sense of, of time was and, and things like that. Um, it turns out humans are actually really bad at estimating time. Like, so like funny things like, like that, um, yeah. I, I mean, I could go on. I don't want to keep, uh, but like, it's you, just such yeah, a neat. Meet- I, th-
0: I think I need you to stop because you just tripped over something in my memory that, um, Uh, Wow, Jamie, you just said that Kairos and Kronos are two different perceptions of time that I had never heard those terms put together in that way. Here's the thing, Jamie, let me explain. When I was in high school, we went on a retreat. This was a Catholic high school, so we did all sorts of things with mind and thought and philosophy, and our retreat is named... Kairos, and I did not know why until just now. It's about time travel. <gasps>
3: <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was it planned to deceive early in his life? And there he is. He's he's reliving that moment right now. <laughs> uh, I, yes, sir. Yes,
0: I am. <laughs> wow. I, I'm thinking
3: that, that there certainly could be some studies on this. Think about a child going to a school. Where they are requested to be present at every, you know, every period starts, every period ends. You've got to be present. Your pencil's got to be up. You've got to be engaged. Air traffic controllers, they have to be engaged for their entire shift because you know things could happen that would be really, really bad. But you know, some of us don't have to work that way. We we have the pleasure of sitting down and pondering and working out things and certainly we have the ability to dream through part of our our job there are times we have to be present but anyway it seems like that there would be an an interesting place to kind of touch on both of those um, basically on how humans interact with 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 uh, things I'm, I'm sorry I didn't mean to take it that way
0: but you you know that you are in a room of educators right now, and yes, we do think about time of how much time a student needs to achieve a goal to to finish an assignment, and that time uh, is is on my mind all the time when I'm giving an assignment. I don't know how long it's going to take every student, and it's different for every student. Sure, and and how much contemplative time looks like inactivity but is actually incredibly vital to getting to the point of the
2: work i mean and we can riff on this time thing too and my my like you know people that i know who are experts and who are makers right and who have developed like years of expertise in a thing you know and they'll be like it may take me you know an hour to make x But you're not paying me a rate for that one hour, you're paying me for all of the time it took me and you know, like, like chip what you said too about the thought time. I mean, I feel like, especially now you know, it's this idea of like needing the pauses, right? I mean, like, why is time travel so wonderful? Because to me, I'd be like, I would time travel back. And I would like just like take a nap for a week in a cabin. <laughs> and like, I would like, you know, like, what would I do? I wouldn't try to affect anything, I would give myself space and rest, mm-hmm. you know? Um, or, I mean, like my kids, we just watched Groundhog Day, like a week or- and a half ago, whatever it was, we watch it on the day, right? So this idea of like, what would you do with your time? I mean, it, it really is and an trying to estimate like how long will someone take on something, you know, and, and some of that, I think it's very cultural. Like, so psychologists speaking of the time, like we were joking earlier about like, I'm gonna time you on 15 second increments, but you know, like I'm working with individuals who are doing like classroom observations and that is really what they do. It's every 15 seconds, there's a timer it goes off and they look to see what's happening. I given hundreds of IQ tests, like that's a thing that I've done in, in my training. And a lot of those tests are scored by accuracy and time, right? And we're obsessed with this and it's always fascinating. So my advisor's advisor actually created a new way of considering IQ tests that they call a process method because she was always like, it's a really big difference if they got this wrong because they took one second too long, like a, like a block, like mm-hmm. a puzzle, or because they ate the puzzle pieces, you know, like that's, that tells you something really different about the people. And so kind of like our obsession with time and being so precise and timing of things and associating time with efficiency and productivity. I mean, I think the idea of being able to kind of escape that or be able to like have more of it is so it's just so appealing to, to people.
0: And that comes back to my thinking about my retreat as a child. They sent us for a weekend and said, don't do anything but sit here and think. I think that that is vital to all of our good mental health is to have that
1: time. Now, in this novel recursion that we've been reading and so enjoying people can use this technology to basically do like a do over of a portion of your life. So Jamie, I love that you said you would go back and take a nap, which I think we can all completely engage with, but what do you think would happen if we were actually to live a portion of our lives again? Not like, could we change anything or not? I'm not talking like the free will, but what kind of psychological effects might that have on people? I'm kind of guessing it would not contribute to our mental health.
2: I love this question um, because, because I can't, we can't test it. Like of so course. many of these other you know things you've asked me, I'm like, Oh, we have studies and they show this, right?
0: Or and- can we? <laughs>
3: <laughs> well,
2: so I can give you my kind of best guesses. And, and I, and I think that you're right. Well, I don't, I don't know. And I'll give you my two sort of thoughts on it. My one thought is it could go very poorly for two reasons. Number one, and we do know this, there's tons of research. Humans actually get more pleasure from wanting a thing than having a thing, right? right. So like,
1: like Friday, I mean, is the Friday is everyone's favorite day because you're anticipating the weekend. anticipation and Sunday, yes. which is part of the weekend is people's least favorite day.
2: <laughs> right? So humans, so like, there's two things that makes us human and separates us as far as we know on today's date, you know, that other animals can't do. So it's ex- the, our experience of consciousness and our ability to have language, right? It allows us to look forward to things and it allows us to reflect back. Like memory is an, is a, is an outgrowth of those things. So, you know, I don't like, I don't know. I think it would be a lot of people would like want to do these things, but then if they actually experience them, I don't think that it would feel the way that they might predict. The, the other part that goes along with that and the negative direction is um, humans are also really bad. This is tied to it at something called affective forecasting, which is imagining how you will feel in a given situation. And we overestimate both positively and negatively. You're like, I'm going to get those new shoes and they're going to make me feel like just so great and wonderful. And you get them and maybe they do for a little while. But then again, you're on to the wanting part. You're like, well, I have those shoes. Now I'm going to get the next pair of shoes or whatever your thing is, right?
3: We actually do have some case studies. Back in the 1970s and early 80s, many people would head out to Fantasy Island and see Mr. Rourke and they would experience something again. And then there would be like, you know, that moment where they would say, yeah, it probably wasn't as good as I thought it would be.
0: I love those historical documents.
3: Our young people—they'll never know what allium
0: was, (laughs) and they won't get the historical documents joke either.
2: (laughs) So it could go badly, right? Like that's part of it. (laughs) But it could go fine because, so, like, Pam, you—you've mentioned like this idea of cognitive dissonance a few Mm -hmm. times. Yeah. Okay. So our brains like homeostasis and alignment, and we engage in some defense mechanisms and sometimes it's denial or repression and we'll just use revisionist history all the time, right? Like all the time, right? (laughs) Like we do this. There's no, there's no question about this, right? To deny things that have happened or to like make things make sense, right? You're like, You get X instead of Y, and you're like, oh, I wanted X all the time. I never wanted Y in the first place. What are you talking about? Or even to deny that some people did things. I mean, this is where people who have done awful things, right? And then people are like, but that's a good person you know, I'm always like, good people make really bad decisions, you know, people try to make the Mm -hmm. distinction like that's a good person, that's a bad person. And I'm pretty much on the camp, like pretty much everybody's good. There are actually a few truly evil people that they that is a real thing that does exist. But it's, it's so rare. What we have are a lot of good people making really bad choices. But then I think they would use a lot of different like cognitive tools to sort of reframe and justify those. So Mm-mm. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I I think it would be tough. I, I, I think if people really could go back and do these kind of do-overs, I don't I don't think it would I, I think I would land more in the like I don't think it would go very well,
0: <laughs> That's so interesting that you believe that there are such things as bad people. Not just bad choices, but actual evil exists in our world. I I wonder how much physiology plays into our thinking and, and our choices.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, again, it's so rare that it happens. And it is, you know, this isn't meant to be like a discussion about neuroscience, but we do know that there are a couple of really specific brain regions that help us make good choices and want to work with people and not want to hurt people and do all of these things. And it just happens that on occasion, there are people who are born and, you know, to put it in like pretty simple language, like their settings are just askew, right? Mm -hmm. And so they, they don't feel the same way if they hurt someone that most of us would feel, right? Most of us, you know, even we, a lot of us hurt people. We have good intentions. The hurt is not intentional, right? But for some people, they really do see it. It's funny. It's one of those things where I don't know that I actually did believe it until I was on a rotation where I saw it in a child. And, and it really was like, okay, okay it really does. You know, it's like a one in, you know, 10 to hundred million cases. So again, like it's so rare that it does happen, but yeah, in those cases, it's pretty much, it's purely biological.
1: I don't have a follow up to that. That I know. That's... that's so wow. I'm I'm just kind of oh, blown away by that thought, Jamie. Wow. I know.
2: Well, because then and yeah. then the question is, and then what do you do? Right. I mean, right. And then, and then there are cases too. And I know this isn't like what you you guys are talking about, right? But there are cases where people have been just like like it's beyond abuse and neglect where people have been like intentionally trained as children. Right. So it makes me think of like, you know, child soldiers and things like that, where they've been trained to do things and that, and then what, like, and then what could you do with those kids later? And there actually have been some studies, like some of those people, they are actually able to sort of like rehabilitate them to some Mm -hmm. level, but it's
1: complicated. And that's so interesting because as as you work with like individual trauma and that's like child soldiers kind of in between individual cultural, but we've recently read two novels that talked about trauma in really, really different ways. So we read Jay Sawyer's flash forward. And in that novel people uh, there's everyone's consciousness jumps forward 21 years in this moment. And so for two minutes, everyone in the world basically blacks out, gets a flash forward vision of the future 21 years, and then comes back into their own body. And in Sawyer's, and we, we uh, interviewed Sawyer, he's such an optimist. But in that novel, people are like, whoa, it happened to everyone. So they're so much more able to deal with the trauma of like 20 million people died during those two minutes around the world. And also, you know, people saw various things in their flash forward that could be traumatizing. But Blake Crouch has a much darker vision of the world, where in recursion, when people are doing do-overs and getting basically a different kind of time travel it's really horrifying and I guess I'm wondering like when we think about these big moments of cultural trauma and of course 9-11 which you've already mentioned comes to mind or the coronavirus (laughs) pandemic comes to mind like as a psychologist how do you deal with trauma differently when it's a more cultural shared trauma Rather than an individual trauma, and I'm not asking you to say who's right, Sawyer or Crouch, but like, what would what would you expect? Do you think that because it's shared, people can deal with it more easily or less easily?
2: I think it's going to come down to to resources. I think it kind of depends on what the trauma looks like, because like 9/11 is a good example, and then I would also think about the tsunami that happened like in Sh- in Sri Lanka. You <laughs> know. Um, in the in the early 2000s and when it does happen to everyone then you know our when we talk about like evolution like biologically we're not necessarily evolving or we are but it's super slow but culturally we can have really like really fast shifts and so when you have something that happens to everyone in that way In some ways, I think it can be easier because the culture shifts, right? And you develop different practices and different habits and different reflection points. And it's something that is shared with everyone. And so everyone can kind of participate and engage in it in that way. I mean, this is assuming that you've met people's basic needs, right? That they are safe, that they have food, that they have health care, you know, once those things are met, then you can kind of work on like the belongingness in the community and the meaning making of the event. Like the other thing that we know that's so true is um, actually after the, the the tsunami in Sri Lanka, which was so close on the heels of, um, of 9-11, people were really worried that there would be um, a, just like an essentially like an outbreak of PTSD because it was so awful. In many cases, there wasn't in part because it was something that they all experienced. And so they all came together in part, and this is kind of one of those like double-edged swords because that area of the world has experienced a lot of upheaval, both political and also climate related. They had resiliency in that way for dealing with those things. So that Um, is
1: exactly, that's an excellent example that would support Robert J. Sawyer's perspective on how people might actually be quite able as a community to deal with this shared traumatic event. That's super interesting.
2: Yeah. I mean, when it comes to individuals, I think so many times, I think we forget how much people really just want to be heard and and validated and just have somebody say, yeah, that's real. So like, I know when I open class, it's not necessarily every day, but it's definitely the first day of the week. I just say to my students, I'm like, hey, I know everybody knows this. But we're still living and working and learning in the midst of a pandemic, which is kind of wild when you think about how we're all just doing this, right? And I just want to give you some space if everybody, anybody needs some space. When someone has an individual trauma, I think it's different, in part because those people, they often are reluctant to share because of the reactions that they get, because people will have this, oh! Are you okay oh no you know i, I mean and it's well intentioned like what can i do to help or that'll get it'll upset the person hearing it right i mean we know this so um quite a few of my classmates work within the VA system and they do work with vets who have PTSD. So this is not certainly not true for all vets, but for a lot of them, they're really um, reluctant to talk to their friends and family who haven't served about their experiences, especially the traumatic ones, because they just, they don't want to, they don't want to do that to the people they love. Right. So I think that it can be harder in some ways when the, trauma is individual, just because overcoming that barrier versus something that's just a shared experience, we can kind of do what we do as humans, which is come together and create traditions and language and etc. about that. So, yeah, that's a tough one.
1: No, but I love that answer. Um, And I love that you're, you're so right to mention human resiliency. I mean, it's a, super, it's, it's a super strong feature of who we are.
3: It's the spirit of humanity. I mean, it, it is mm. what allows us to move forward, even historically, when, if something truly unusual ends up happening. I mean, people experience war. They experience uh, natural disasters. They experience so much, but humans find a way to survive and move forward.
1: And that might be part of why we enjoy these. We're so enjoying a book like Blake Crouch's *Recursion*, which has so much trauma in it because it is showcasing, at least so far, resiliency. And I don't know where this novel's going to end. So I am super excited to finish it um, and see if we end up with some human resiliency or with the end of all things. That's that's a
0: great intro to next week's reading, <laughs> Pam, because I know the answer to your you question do. and I am not going to spoil it for you, but I am going to tell you that you will absolutely enjoy the ride that Blake Crouch gives us in books four and five. It is quite the the journey and yes there will be some consequences of our narrative in recursion books four and five and i believe you will enjoy it in a uh very caring way let me just leave it at that
1: (laughs) all right all right all right stop you are (laughs) a spoiler right now (laughs) all right so,
0: Jamie, thank you so much for joining us today. I I am much more contemplative than I was about an hour ago, so thank you for engaging my mind. Uh, Saturday morning cartoons are not going to be the same, because now I have to think about why I enjoy them so much.
2: You're welcome. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> she said sorry, not sorry. <laughs> Is that the psychologist's motto?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is, and my students have heard me say this many times. I'm like, I'm sorry, what I, I'm going to open your eyes to some things. You will never be able to close them once they are open. Wonderful.
1: That's, that's. I mean, we say that in literary studies too, right? Once you've read this book, you can never unread it.
0: Yeah. Wonderful.
1: That's the human experience.
3: That's what we're here for. Absolutely. So how can our listeners find out more about the work that you're performing and the things that you're doing?
2: Oh, gosh, they're certainly welcome to check out my Twitter, um, which I think is linked in the show notes. And from Twitter, it actually links to all of the other places that I exist in cyberspace, my website, my Instagram, all of those great things. So it's a it's a one-stop, one-click destination.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much once again for joining us. And uh, thank you for all the, the- deep contemplation. This is the deepest psychological episode that we've had. 151 (laughs) episodes of silliness and, and then one episode of real deep thinking. Thank you so much.
2: You are welcome. So
0: I don't know, Chip, I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. I think. Think we can? I, I'm thinking about thinking so much now that my my metacognition engine is engaged, Dr. Kleinman. Thank you so much for for engaging my thinking about thinking again. <laughs> I hope I hope everybody out there is thinking and thinking about thinking and thinking about thinking about thinking and and enjoying this book with us. We have books four and five. We're going to finish recursion by Blake Crouch for next week, and uh, no spoilers. But I. Th- think you're going to enjoy it. We would love to hear from you. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-410-4867. Our website is sandwichesatregularhours.com. Our email is sandwichesatregularhours at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and YouTube. I want to thank you again for listening to Sandwiches at Regular Hours. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip Hassenclough.
1: And I'm Pam Vador.
0: We'll see you in the future, or at least think about it.